Today is November 7th, 2011. This is the Arabist podcast. With me today is always Ursula Lindsay and Ashraf Khalil. We have been away for two weeks because we went to Tunisia and although we wanted to do a podcast there, we got too busy. So sorry about that. We're going to catch up on what happened in Tunisia and what's happening in Egypt uh, lately. What, uh, what have you been up to, uh, Ashraf? I uh, finished my book. Yay. Mabruk. Yes, yes. Liberation Square coming out from St. Martin's Press on January 3rd, I believe. And uh, believe me, this won't be the last time you hear you, you listeners hear me mention this. And immediately, the price of having him on here is that he has to plug the book every time, every uh, half hour, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, and immediately after that, I moved. So, uh, so it's been a, a frantic period, but I'm 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 all done. I'm all settled in, and and going to be getting back to covering Egypt on a on a daily and weekly basis from now on. So, hooray! Cool. Well, we, we, we've been uh, we had a fantastic week in Tunisia in uh, in the run up, during, and a little after the elections that that they just held on October twenty third. Then I was in Istanbul uh, shortly thereafter for something else. But uh, for me, and, and if readers of the blog have been following some of the stuff I've written about the Tunisian election, there's still more stuff coming out in the next few weeks. Um, it, it, it really brought home the extent to which Egypt was doing really badly. That, and was, we knew. that was the impression I had not only from you two coming back from Tunisia, but from several other reporters who went to Tunisia and covered those elections and then came back here, was that there's this perception, and maybe it's not a perception if it's that unanimous, that the Tunisians are doing this better then they are they're they're not screwing up the post-revolutionary situation. Yeah, but but they're not just doing it slightly better. They're doing it better by you know magnitude. It's enormous. I mean, okay. they're doing exponentially better than. What Egypt. are the crucial distinctions, and can any of it be applied to Egypt in the short term, or is it, have we passed points of no return? Let's start with what made Tunisia Tunisia's elections and its post-dictatorship, post-revolutionary situation and process better than what's happening here? Well, there's two things. I mean, the elections were well run and they were, you know, observed by tons of domestic and international observers. And there already you have a significant difference from Egypt, which is only letting international observers in, in under some very strong conditions. They're not giving them the kind of access they had in Tunisia. That's just what... So there's the way the elections were run. Tunisia had peaceful, organized, uh, free and fair mm. elections. Very well-prepared elections. I think that's really important. The Tunisians have been working on four or five months now on, on these elections. They were supposed to be held this summer. They were postponed till October with, you know, there was an overall consensus, some dissent uh, within the political parties on that. For those who don't but, know, who's been running Tunisia on a daily and weekly basis since the revolution? Not their equivalent of a Supreme Council of the Armed no, Forces, it, not the military? It's not the army. So we were, I was just about to get there. So besides the way the elections themselves were run, and as you're mentioning, Asander, also like the awareness raising and the encouragement of people to participate. It, it, not not just that, but even the fact that the elections were planned according to a system that was decided well in advance, well in advance so that everyone could plan for it, if we, all the parties could prepare, all the, the things like, like uh, uh, you know, the, the, the bureaucratic things that, that polling stations need, the ink, the papers, the ballot boxes, all of this was planned in advance. 
the yeah the rules of the game the the, the there were rules for how campaigning could take place um, there but but then to get back to the larger transition picture in Tunisia so the big difference between Tunisia and Egypt is that in Tunisia the military is not playing a political role they're not running the country they did not step into the power vacuum the other huge difference is the government that took that was in power right after Ben Ali fled was an old regime government was people with connections to the previous regime who tried to kind of manage the transition. And were rejected. And were rejected. There was instability, there was security services fomenting instability, there was regime elements trying to maintain control, and there were massive protests, and they were pushed out, and a sort of technocratic, transitional, national unity government was put in place instead that is now going to step down and be replaced by a government appointed by this new constituent assembly. So... The other incredibly striking difference in Tunisia, at least for me when I was there, is that you had the feeling that things had actually flipped in a significant way, that people who were out of power were now in power, that you, you see what I'm saying, that dissidents and people who had been seriously persecuted and marginalized are actually running things now, and that, you know, of course, there's still, the former regime is there, um, they're not, you know, some of them are still involved in politics, there, there is resistance, there is, I'm sure, you know, plotting of various kinds, but these people are on the run, they're on the defensive, they're, you know, the, the average Tunisian has seen their day also because, their life also because the regime was so awful, change dramatically. Now... What about the police? What about the security services? I mean, are they, are they're still unreformed. I mean, that hasn't gone through. They haven't unreformed. had a full transitional justice thing. There hasn't been. There's a commission that's supposed to take care of this. There's still a lot of complaints about, you know, compensation for people who were who the relatives of uh, people who died during the revolution and and people who were wounded. All that is also there, but it's being handled in a much more consensual manner. People have are willing to give the the transition some time to take care uh, 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 to take care of these things. And parties have campaigned partly on uh, some parties, not all parties, on the need for more for deeper, you know, uh, uh, transitional justice for a truth and reconciliation commission for the full. Uh, prosecution or, or uh, uh, exposure, at least, of the crimes uh, committed by the security forces during the Ben Ali regime. You know, th that concept is there. And I think that, that there's still people who are not happy. There's still people who, who, who don't fully trust the process. Mm -hmm. But my impression was that there's overall, they're giving it credit. There's a big, generally positive consensus that things are moving in the right direction. And to, you know, I don't, I don't. I'm. This is my first visit to Tunisia, so I'm by no means an expert on their security services and stuff. The police's treatment of the average citizen and of people seems to be quite different. The secret police that used to harass activists and journalists mm -hmm. and all those people has just disappeared. Um, 
presumably because a lot of their activities and the activities of informers were financed not through official budgets, but through, you know, sort of slush funds that were financed by the corruption of the Ben Ali regime itself, they've actually lost some of their financial resources. They've lost all the party offices that they used to operate out of because the party was disbanded and all of its real estate taken away. So on a logistical level, they, 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 they are, in fact, like seriously handicapped now. But, you know, at the same time, there's still an unanswered question in Tunisia, I mean, which is kind of like here, except here it's a little bit more obvious, is where are the flu? You know, where are the remnants yeah, of the old regime? Yeah, they don't just go away. They I don't mean, just go away. And I think the next step in Tunisia is going to be how do you address these people? How do you, uh, uh, you know, whether you have truth reconciliation commission or not, uh, uh, whether you, uh, how members of the police forces and how many of them will be punished in, in, by tribunals? Will this be through a normal court process? Will it be through an exception? All these questions are unresolved. But the basic idea that, that you know, this government is not plotting against the people is not a counter, or, or non, the coming government, is not a counter-revolutionary government holds because people just elected it. What is the military doing? They're just sitting in their barracks, wait, letting the civilians hash it out and awaiting orders from an yeah. elected government? I mean, the, the, head, yeah. the head of the army, General Rashid Amar, played a little bit of a prominent role in the first few days. Uh, uh, basically, his, the, the, the most important uh, thing that he did was was refuse uh, an order by Ben Ali after Ben Ali fled, right. actually to 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 uh, prepare things for the for his return. Oh, it was post. I, I knew that the, the that Ben he Ali had fled very quickly. I, I wasn't mean, sure people, the timing of it. Yeah, people. Ben Ali fled on on uh, the afternoon of uh, of January fourteenth. Uh, yeah. Uh, partly at the insistence of his uh, security chief uh, Ali Sariati. On on the plane, he called Rashid Amar and said, "Arrest Ali Sariati," because he thought Ali Sariati was doing a palace coup against him. Okay. And uh, he, but uh, all the and and Rashid Amar did do this. I mean, Ali Sariati was arrested and is still under. Uh, arrests now. He's been tried once, but I think there's more more trials. But he did not allow. It was pretty clear then that he would not allow the the return of uh, of Ben Ali, and he 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 handed over power basically to to the Speaker of Parliament and 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 the uh, Prime Minister at the time, who became the interim Prime Minister for a while until he was deposed. But. Um, the army, and he came out, you know, I remember uh, being in Tunis a week or so after the revolution. The uh, people were still protesting. Uh, that's right. People, you, were, you were in Tunis on January 25th when this all kicked off. You that's came right, back yeah. just before the 28th. And at the time, there were still protests around the Kasbah ahead of the seat of government in Tunis, especially by people from Sidi Bouzid, because, you know, they, they, they wanted a, a more radical change, and especially they weren't happy that the prime minister at the time, Hanoushi, was, was still in place. Uh, but Anugashi Damar came out a few times then and said, listen, don't worry, the, the army will guarantee that, uh, that the sanctity of the revolution. But then he's been completely low profile ever since then, and things are in the hands of, I mean, you have a figurehead president who's 83 years old or something like that. Right. 
who's the former Speaker of Parliament, who's uh, you, you, you had after multiple tries of various prime ministers, finally for the last, what, six months or so, you've had this uh, a prime minister who used to be a minister in the Ben Ali government, but who's generally trusted also actually about the same age, I think is 82, but but he, he, he was seen as being quite competent and not having personal ambitions. And he, he I think, deserves some credit for steering things in a, uh, in a positive way. They have addressed a few issues during this transition, transition time in terms of, of you know, the, the, dealing with the economic disturbance called by, caused by the revolution. Uh, also, I think Tunisia civil society worked well to address things like people's demands for higher salaries. You know, overall, you've had a 10-15% increase of salaries across the board in really? Tunisia that was negotiated partly by the trade unions, but also factory owners and, and, and their... Uh, uh, and their staff. I mean, there's been also some money handed out to uh, unemployed graduates, uh, and uh, so 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 there's been a combination of things that meant that meant that on the one hand they pacified the situation, and on the other they they kept things going so that you had a clear you know political horizon, elections, constituent assembly. Eventually, new elections and the, ele- and the election of a president. The, it's still not 100% resolved how that's in what order and, and how All that's right. going to take place. And different people have different ideas of how to go about it. But at least now they have an elected uh, uh, constituent assembly that can set the rules and that, that has the legitimacy of having been elected with, with this election that had you know quite a, quite a large turnout. Uh, I mean, again, just coming back to the comparison with Egypt, the most striking thing is that if you look at the first few weeks, things were as bad there as they were here, but eventually they got better. There were, I think, psychological thresholds that they crossed where people got more and more confidence into this transition process. In Egypt, that never seems to have happened. But again, the big difference is that there, they because you didn't have the army, which is a foundational aspect of the old regime controlling the process, you had to have all the political forces that had some credibility come together and put together a genuine transition process that they could sell to people and that and that actually marked a series of, of changes. Yeah, but remember the army here could have decided in February, uh, uh, okay, we're going to stabilize things, there's a security situation we need to take care of and we'll do that. But we need a political transition process here. Why don't we give it to this, let's say, uh, widely respected personality to be prime or, minister and or, handle this? Like it could have been Alberti, it could have been a council know, of whoever. three that, that like uh, Barada was, yes. was proposing immediately after the revolution, yes. some sort of ruling transitional council of three or four people, maybe even including a military representative. That was one of his proposals, and that just kind of got ignored. And you sort this out among yourselves, basically, you politicians. You decide how, 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 how to okay. distribute. You know, you could have had a council of various political forces well, try you and hammer only, this out. You only could have had it if the, if the military high council had agreed to it, and they didn't from from day one. Sure, sure. No, no, I mean, but the, I mean, the, 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 the SCAF could have made that choice, but clearly it was not only that it did not want to, to make that choice, but we can, I think, legitimately ask whether it's even 
capable of making such a choice, whether it's even these people and their way to think, the fact that they're all 60 to 70-year-old military officers who spend their own time being, you know, senior officers in Mubarak's army, mm. that they have, you know, the imagination to, 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 to think of a transition process that they don't micromanage. But mm. the result speaks for itself. I mean, the result speaks for itself between the events of Mespero, the... the the, the fact that the, the coming election coming and starting at the end of the month seems to be largely unprepared. The fact that there's no political consensus on anything, and, how, uh, and especially this week uh, or la- over the last week over what the next constitution is going to look like. The um, completely contradictory, you know, the actual worsening human rights situation in Egypt compared yeah. to Hosni Mubarak's uh, era. Now, how, how was the participation that you saw? Because I saw some very clever get out the vote uh, videos or tactics uh, in advance of the vote. One that I'd love to see copied here, uh, the, the the one with the, the Ben Ali poster on the building that just look up Tunisia vote or something on, on uh, We'll, we'll YouTube. put up a link. We put up a link to this on, on the website uh, uh, last, a week ago or so. great. And we put up a link and one of the organizers just sent me a making off video of that. I love which it. Which I also we got it. We got it. We we're putting out a call. Watch this video and somebody on this end do something like this because it was basically a building size poster of Ben Ali in presidential pose was was unveiled and they set up hidden cameras all around and watching people gather and go what the hell is this and you have to remember that it, that poster used to exist uh, exist in that place so it, people, oh it was the site of a previous it. yeah fantastic even better and then people gather and a crowd gathers and they they get their blood up about it and they start tearing down the poster and behind it is another poster saying something along the lines of beware dictatorship can return yeah. uh, very easily get out and vote it was just Wonderful, wonderful stuff. So, in somebody term, do that. Uh, in terms of people's participation, I think that officially they say n- over 90% of registered voters All voted. Right. Now, registered voters weren't that high because a lot of people were registering to vote for the first time. Sure. So, it was about 4 point something million out of 10 million out of, I think, 7.5 people who are actually eligible to vote. Seven and a half million, and, but then in the end, they allowed people who also they allowed unregistered voters to vote as well. Um, but uh, the turnout was over fifty percent of all possible voters, which, like every single person that we spoke to, practically said they had never voted before. Was it one of those days where everybody's got their little ink-stained finger that they're waving around? Oh, I love yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, of course, and then the, the results are in. So the the big and not not particularly a surprise was was the victory of this Islamist party, which got uh, a little over forty percent of the vote, and close. Uh, they were predicted or expected to do how well? They were expe- any. There were predictions that were between there? you know twenty five and fifty percent. So it was it was what people kind of expected. People, I mean. It was not a huge surprise that they did quite well. This is a Nahda? Yeah. And they, they tried to be also very uh, humble about it. And they originally they said, oh, we just hope to get 20%. Everyone knew that they would get at least We're just glad to be here. So 40% is a pretty good result, probably a, a little bit more than they, uh, than they were expecting. But, you know, considering that symbolically they were the biggest 
opposition to to uh, to Ben Ali. They weren't the only opposition. There were also secular opposition parties. But uh, how much of a parallel are they to the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of history or relationship to the government or public stances? Were they well, that same sort of like banned but sort of tolerated? They went through different phases. I mean, they, they, you know, they had a phase in the, uh, I think they started in the late 70s, they had a phase in the early 80s, where uh, under the previous president, Bourguiba, they, who, who was a staunch uh, secularist, they were uh, pretty severely repressed. Also, they themselves weren't entirely nonviolent and were probably more radical than, 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 they, uh, than they are today. You had plotters, I mean, members of a Nahda in the military who, who were involved in plotting a military coup. Okay. They were beat to it by Ben Ali, who did his own what was called a medical coup in right. November 7th, 1987. And then as part of the Ben Ali's honeymoon, they, you know, where he repaired relations with all the angry opposition people, he allowed Nahda to run. They did well in a in a first election, and then he, he didn't let let them run in the uh, in the next one, which was just after uh, what happened in Algeria in right. the nineteen ninety one election. And they were at that point very severely repressed. I mean, people fled the country, people died of torture, people were arrested by the tens of thousands, and they went really underground. Right. Yeah, it was impossible for them to operate. You know, they, they, so so they were banned and not tolerated. Really, they, they, they couldn't <laughs> have any publications. They couldn't have any uh, banned and really banned. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, not fake banned. You know, be, be, I mean, Tunisia was a place where if you went to the mosque too often, you, you would get, uh, you know, reported by uh, right by informants if you. Had a long beard, if you were wearing a headscarf, I mean, just yeah. that sometimes. A regular at dawn prayers is all you need to be, is basically, okay. Now, the, okay. I was going to say, the Go other ahead. difference from the Muslim Brotherhood is that then, in their exile, in, in, in uh, most of the leadership were, ended up in the UK, they had a, uh, seemingly an evolution, uh, an intellectual evolution towards a much more moderate strain of Islamism, much more, I would say, sophisticated and part of an international political discourse, um, very good at talking to Western interlocutors uh, and modeling themselves much more on the AKP, AKP in Turkey. Okay. And, you know, they are in all their public statements and all their public discourse, like significantly more moderate than the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay. I mean, more moderate in the sense because moderate can be wishy washy water. Okay, word. significantly that more progressive, let's they, say, they, they, on women's rights, yeah. on uh, human rights, on freedom of expression. On they have a discourse that that explicitly addresses um, people who aren't religious. It doesn't assume okay. that everybody. You know, you you know, it doesn't speak the way Islamists here. I feel like speak where they basically take it as their as their underlying assumption that everybody, if they are a good Muslim, should agree with them, and everybody should be a good Muslim. In Tunisia, they are actually speaking to a public that they know is partly does not want religion, in, you know, of their conservative religion imposed on them, and they try to be persuasive. They try to say, "We're not going to oppress you. We're not going to force you to do things you don't want. We're not going to impose dress codes. We're not going to damage women's rights." Okay. So it's it's a very different. We went to this Nahda rally, and they did nothing but talk about women's rights. That's interesting. Okay. 
So they got 40%. Who was in second place? Well, they, nine they, people tied for second. No, I mean, there's, there's a pretty clear... The, the second and third place, and they're a little bit more the same, are, are, are the CPR, which is the party headed by Monsef Magzouki, one of the most famous dissidents uh, in Tunisia, who's lived in France for the last few years. And it's a bit it's a surprise how well they did, actually. I, I think they had a good campaign, but also I think Marzouki's personality was quite appealing. But I remember being in Tunisia in January and months of Mokzuki had just returned and people were making fun of him or he's, he was touring the country and so on and he people were saying oh yeah he's he, he, you know people are not going to respect him he's been away for too long and so on Is he getting so that's the, changed he, he gets the he's been away for too long he's been in Europe in cushy exile while we were suffering thing or not, not uh, he himself anymore. suffered a fair amount mm. and was harassed a fair amount and he seems to have just done a good job um, being very Present and articulate, and making his case quite well. Yeah, and and having also a clear idea of what he stands for, and I think that's the second party, and the third party, Takatol, which is a kind of a left, center left, formerly socialist uh, 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 party headed by Mustafa Ben Jafar, who's an early human rights activist in Tunisia, even dating going back to the Bourguiba days. Um, also, I think benefited from having a clear. You know, clear ideas about what they stand for and policies, even uh, you know, economic policies, social policies, uh, as well as a char- you know, charismatic uh, leadership. But I, I get the sense that 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 people rewarded those who suffer. So they rewarded Nahdad, rewarded uh, CPR because of Magzouki, Takato because of the suffering Bejafa. is where the street cred comes from. To but a certain also, extent. It's, it's human nature. CPR and and, and Takato. Unlike some other secular parties, did not campaign against Islamists. They campaigned on their own ground, you know, on, on their programs. You had uh, you have a party called the PDP, which is headed by Ahmed Najib Shebbi, who, who who's another, you know, he's probably one of Tunisia's most famous politicians. He's very good on TV. He's very feisty and so on, combative. Uh, he had largely expected to to come second after Nahda. Uh, this. Reports. I'm not sure whether they're true that he'd hired expensive American political consultants for his campaign mm. and so on, and, and his party completely crashed in the elections. And their, I mean, their entire platform was just anti-Islamist. I mean, they, we, we, you know, they would say things like Tunisians need to choose between modernity and the Middle Ages. Okay. Y- y- you know, their But whole, the other parties weren't like this? The was... other parties were like, we're different, we're seculars, we think it's important to have protections for these freedoms, but we're willing to work with the Islamists. You didn't, we don't you didn't think... have this liberal secular hysteria that seems kind of uniform here among the... Yeah. Well, you did have it, but the, but the parties who fomented it were punished for it at the polls, uh, seemingly. The, the, the voters chose people who, who, who liberal, secular for lack of a better term, parties who just chose to talk themselves up rather than cast themselves as the only thing standing between us and the Middle Ages. And, and that an Islamist takeover is going to be the end of the world. Okay. And, uh, I so mean, the voters rejected the tactic, or maybe the personality of the guy, you don't know, but, but that's okay, that's interesting. And of course, this discourse that... Um, that the, that the main question and the main concern about the Tunisian elections was whether Islamists were going to take over was, was, was something that, you know, existed within Tunisian media, which tends to be kind of elite, francophone, coastal, urban, dominated. 
and but also in the international media and particularly in the French media and yes. we were, we were I, I was personally a little bit shocked being there and watching the coverage of, 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 of French media of I, the elections. I, I, I have to I have to interject that I, I saw Ursula like maybe two or three days after she had returned from Tunisia and 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 she embarked on a memorable rant that uh, for those of you like listening with like kids in the room or anything like that, the the, the, the Ursula's hopefully just as passionate upcoming rant will, was will, will, will shall be entitled "Fuck the French." So Ursula, please explain your "fuck the French" attitude when you return from Tunisia. I'm sure they deserve it. I'm not. And I should preface this by saying that I was a comparative literature major who studied French literature in university. I've lived in Paris. I do not have the knee-jerk American anti-French attitude. Well, I totally this do have the knee-jerk American anti-French attitude. This Fuck them. So, so let's hear this. That's why I'm enjoying this. There is nothing like going to North African countries to make you feel like, fuck the French. Because the, the coverage on the part of French media so completely elided the fact, the complicity of, of the French political system in propping up dictators like Ben Ali, and had presenters the day of the elections saying things like, you know, the main concern of these elections is whether Islamists will take away women's rights. You know, I think the main concern of these elections is whether we're going to end up with a crappy dictatorship that you guys propped up for the last 20 years again or not. I mean, it was so absolutely tone deaf and condescending. I don't yeah, understand how incredible. the whole country didn't vote for the Islamists just to just to say fuck the French. I mean, enough. An incredible alarmism into. Uh about you know the fact that Nahda had had have won the elections, uh, you know, where's it going to mean for for, for for women's rights? Where's it going to mean for the for, for secularism and so on? And can I just interject? Uh, and Sarkozy the day after saying we're going to be vigilant over human rights in Tunisia. <laughs> now they're going to be yeah. vigilant over human rights in Tunisia. Now. I mean, now. I don't, I don't what's, what's French for chutzpah? Yeah, Google. <laughs> there we go. There we Google. go. Yeah, I, I should note here that I'm 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 not French, but I was raised. I went to a French school, and I, I, I'm raised in the French culture, basically. So I, I guess, uh, but I'm not here defending the French. But just, he knows to, better. To give you some ideas, I mean, as someone who follows French politics, and, and to be fair. Not all French media was was so bad. A lot of the TV talk shows were bad, and so on. Le Monde had quite decent coverage. Uh, Mediapart, who's a great, that's a great French website that's uh, founded by a former managing editor of Le Monde. I highly recommend for their Tunisia and, and Arab actually uprisings coverage. Um, did 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 really good uh, coverage too, and. Um, but you know, to give you an idea of the reaction, French politicians almost all of them, apart from actually Alain Juppé, the French foreign minister, who who said kind of congratulations and left it at that, had these kind of worried reactions. Uh, the spokesman for the Front National, the right-wing uh, mm-hmm. uh, party uh, in France, uh, put out a statement. Uh, noting that uh, Anahda also won in France for the the, the French voter, the Tunisian French voters, and about maybe two thirds of them are dual national Tunisian French voted for Anahda. They won the expat vote yeah, in they, France. They won the expat vote in France, and and noted Ooh. that this should revive uh, his party's policy of not allowing dual nationality. 
Mm, that might just have domestic repercussions inside so, France. Yeah. You know, this is the kind of thing that we're dealing and with. And, and, you know, people may be very puzzled about why, why the French are so nasty. Because but. people who vote for an Islamist party apparently don't deserve to be French. Mm-hmm. This is a French obsession. I mean, my personal, uh, my, my personal theory is that the French are still completely, as a nation, traumatized by their withdrawal from Algeria and the Algerian uh, War of National Liberation. Uh, completely traumatized by having lost Algeria. They have this, they're, they're obsessed with, with uh, uh, Islamists. Uh, uh, obsessed with, uh, in a way, actually, sometimes I think the French are the are, are are in some ways the reversed, the mirror image of Islamists, in the sense that Islamists are obsessed with female sexuality mm-hmm. and veiling and, and segregation and things like that. The French are also are obsessed with Muslim sexuality. Right, and they're obsessed with that. That, 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 that you have to. These Muslim women must be protected from the nasty Islamists. They must be protected so they can be, uh, uh, I, I guess, liberated. It, but it, liberated very, into this particular. One of the things that was so obvious there, and this, I think it's worth mentioning, is Tunisia has this kind of cultural and socio-economic divide between the coastal, urban, French-speaking, better-off parts of the country, and the interior, which is where the revolution started, which is rural, which is poor, which is more Arabic-speaking, um, which is more conservative. And what you... I mean, you can have serious debates, and they did have serious debates about protecting freedom of expression, protecting women's rights, but at a certain point, you get the feeling that the Tunisian elite and their and the, the, the French... You know, elite that they are in conversation with, you know, just wants the country to look like them and to be like them and to be comfortable for people like them. And there's 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 something deeply undemocratic about not accepting it that these that these other people you know are now coming to power that they are going to play a role that the country is going to be shaped by them as well. And it's also I think a question of you know basically neocolonialism is that as. The, if Tunisia decides to distance itself from the French model, and frankly, I think that's that, that's actually not so much the point, because Tunisia is already very much inspired by a French model, and for its founding uh, father of post-independence Tunisia, Bourguiba, very consciously adopted a largely French secular model, mm-hmm. and, and Nada is partly trying to find ways to reclaim their uh, Islamic identity as part of Tunisian identity, and that's its fight, and its fight is in a way as much with Bourguiba's model as it is with Ben Ali and his human rights abuses. But uh, the the the, um, uh, the the French, I think, are worried that if Tunisian society changes, it's not just that oh you know they're they're not like us anymore. Frankly, it's it's their all their privileged business access. The, the fact that Tunisia is basically Tunisia and Morocco still to 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 a lesser but large extent is uh, this kind of private hunting ground for French business. Yeah. Does MP yeah. have all the good uh, uh, oil contracts? Is, is it well, they all don't just have, they sewn don't, up. They or? don't have oil in Tunisia or very little. They have. Uh, I thought they had something. Good. They, they have very little uh, hydrocarbon oh, uh, okay. in, in Tunisia, but, but 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 the MP is Italian anyway. Which but, one is the French? Uh, you have, we have Total, you have uh, Total. Total Fina, I think now it's called. Sorry, you have a, a bunch of others, but, but you, you, you know you have a lot of 
uh, French businesses uh, in the service industry, French, uh, you know, French car companies that import uh, car parts from Tunisia, uh, all sorts of the telecoms. I mean, France Telecom has major investments there. Okay. Uh, and they've seen that change over the last decade. I mean, obviously, the Gulf states are coming in, are you know, buying their share, a share of the market. They have a lot of spare cash. The Americans also, to some extent, the Chinese, of course. Uh, Do you the see French anti-French hostility post-revolution, or I mean, is it so intertwined that it's my favorite thing? Actually, I saw in, in this interview on Mediapart, which I'll link. Uh, is uh, with Monsef Marzouki, mm. where he's asked about this. What, what do you think of the French coverage of the election? And he mm. says, I cannot believe how retarded you all are. Nice. He, he says, I cannot believe that you're so obsessed with Islamists and that, that you fail to see the bigger picture that you... And he, and he says, I, I say this as someone who lived in France, who has many uh, uh, French friends who likes France, that, that, that you, you have a complete blind spot on this issue. Is that as soon as you see Islamists, you, you you panic, and I, I thought I thought I thought he said it. Uh, he said it very well. I mean, and to be fair, it's not just the um, uh, the French who are like this. Sometimes, I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, oh, the Americans American are going to do their and, version of it in yeah. a month. Yeah. Yeah. Alarmism about the Muslim Brotherhood generally coming in. I mean, there's there's you know the usual idiots. Like uh, like Lee Smith, a uh, neoconservative writer who works for the Weekly Standard and Tablet Magazine, uh, who just put out a piece saying that Anahda is a greater threat to U.S. interests than Al Qaeda. Well, oh, good lord! You know. Well, perhaps. I mean, it depends how you define U.S. interests. But to certain parts of the U.S. establishment, if you do have a sort of moderate functioning Islamist-run country come in. That is more of a threat than having a terrorist organization that you can, you know, wage that, that endless you, war yeah, on. That, that gives you an I imperial mean, little pretext. Yes. I yeah. mean, and this is, and all of this, there are still, and we'll have to see how Nahda governs. And I don't think, you know, and and their base may be more conservative than their leadership. And of course, they are going to try. They do have agendas. They are. They are going to they try. Do they do have ideas, ideological ideas want. on how a country should look. And right. They're, I just clearly they want an election or, you know, But if, if you're going to see Islamists come to power anywhere and see it, see all that stuff get worked out in, in what could be a reasonable way, I'm, could kind, be fascinating, of, I'm kind of optimistic that Tunisia is the place where, where it could happen. Okay. Although, although it's you know sandwiched between two completely crazy places, between even now post Gaddafi Libya is with, with, crazy his, neighbor. with the three hundred militias, that's and, why it tries so, to compensate. And, and Algeria, <laughs> you know, fun, completely dysfunctional Algeria uh, uh, on the uh, on the other end. Well, well as as as, as a, a proud American from the Midwest, I'm I'm thrilled with any French bashing I can uh, <laughs> I can stir up. So so there you go. Everybody, tomorrow morning, wake up and uh, cook yourself some freedom toast and. Uh, yeah, fuck the French. I thought it was freedom fries. It was both. I ordered. Oh. I after uh, the invasion of Iraq, I was visiting old friends in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I used to work, and proudly ordered freedom toast at a at a, at a, at a diner. It was a beautiful moment. <laughs> Just I mean to wrap up our Tunisia discussion. Uh, uh, one of the striking things. Is 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 that it's it seems to be going so well, much better than than uh, people could have expected a few months ago. Uh, 
I mean, one should remain vigilant, but so far, so good. And by the way, we have more in-depth uh, examination of the elections. Uh, Ursula and I co-authored uh, an article that's going to come out pretty soon on, and we'll link to it on the website when it does, on um, on uh, MEREP, uh, MEREP.org, the Middle East uh, Research Information Project. Cool. And the other thing is just it really brings home how much things aren't going well in Egypt. And, and you know, it, it goes on. I mean, the list grows longer and longer, I think, here. Just in the last week with this debate over the Constitution, uh, the the, yeah, the, the imprisonment of uh, Al Abdel Fattah or, we, or friend Al Abdel Fattah. We, we, we currently have two different bloggers in in Egyptian jails. One, uh, you know, from several weeks ago. More. How long has Michael Nabil been? Oh, oh, he's been in for months. a while since yeah. April, I think. Since April and May. And we have a new addition to those illustrious ranks of of Ale. Tell us a little bit about uh, Ale Abdel Fattah and what. Uh, what he allegedly is, is, is being investigated for and what his reaction has been. Well, Allah, who, who is an activist and, and a blogger who, who's been involved in some of the revolutionary groups uh, since, uh, well, since last February, actually moved back to Egypt, I think from South Africa, where he was living uh, with his wife, uh, uh, Manel, also an activist and blogger. Um, and it's worth noting for those who he, don't know that Alain and Manel together are two of the godfathers of the yeah. Egyptian blogosphere. At Manala.net. Exactly. And Alain and Manel's bit bucket was, was for, for many, many years this kind of catch-all, very idiocentric and, and, and you know, like an like aggregator of, of just kind of whatever was on their minds that week and whatever was out there. And uh, yeah. so he's, 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 a, he's a, a big name. He's one of the godfathers of the Egyptian blogosphere. Absolutely. Basically. One of the first and one of the first to, to move across, to do it in English and Arabic. And he's been very critical of the army. He's been very present at protests and, and, and in the activism scene since he's come back. And his whole family, of course, he comes from this illustrious family of, of human rights activists. His sister, ironically, before he was brought in by the military prosecutor himself, was actually running the campaign against military trials, mm -hmm. Mona Safe. His father is a famous human rights lawyer. His mother is an academic who works on independence for professors, that movement within Egyptian universities. His aunt is Al Hafsawaif, the famous Egyptian writer. Uh, Menel, his wife, also comes from a human rights uh, aristocracy. She's the daughter of Mahedin Hassan, one of the other major human rights lawyers and activists. I mean, so these guys are like almost Egypt troublemaking royalty, just kind exactly. of such as it is. Like people, the, the the people who have been fighting the good fight when there was really no hope and no payoff to it, you know, back twenty years. Mm. And so Alaa was called in on October 30th uh, by the military prosecutor to address questions and um, on charges of uh, attacking the military, inciting violence against the military, and stealing military weapons on the night of October 9th when uh, this uh, protest by Coptic Christians in front of the radio and TV building uh, degenerated into shocking violence, and uh, 25 people were, were 25 civilians uh, were killed um, by the army and and perhaps also by uh, 
mobs uh, who, who came to the scene. Um, so, and he refused to answer the questions of the prosecutor. He and another activist were called in, and they both refused to answer on the grounds that, you know, one, the military shouldn't be conducting an investigation of itself because it is an actor in what happened. Which was a great defense. He's like, you guys can't say that you're investigating this because you're one of the suspects. Right. And the other, I think, argument just being that civilians should not face military trials. Over 12,000 Egyptians have been tried in military courts since Mubarak stepped down. This is a huge bone of contention. These trials are, you know, arbitrary, unfair, very fast. Often the people do not have representation. There are reports of them being mistreated before trial. There are reports of evidence being fabricated. And activists... It's not just actors who are arrested, there's also people who have committed crimes sometimes and also lots of just bystanders in, in, in areas where some troubles have happened. But um, activists see this as a form of intimidation, that you know the army makes examples of people who say or do things they disagree with and, tr and is trying to just you know tamp down dissent by having the threat of a military trial hang over everybody. Yeah. And, and the proof of that is that actually a few days ago, Allah was offered a deal whereby it would be released if he promised not, never to uh, uh, um, write anything against uh, Field Marshal Tantawi, the head of the SCAF or the SCAF itself, and he refused that deal. Uh, and it, it, I think, which is a fascinating deal to even offer. It's like, okay, we'll let you go as long as you don't ever say anything bad about. Yeah, it's an admission of guilt, basically. But that's what they want. I mean, the, there there is a lot, I think, of dissatisfaction with how the transition is going. There is a, a growing, I think, disenchantment with SCAF, and they are trying through a variety of means to control uh, what gets said in the public domain. There has been, I think, an evident crackdown on the media in the last couple months uh, between confiscations of papers, journalists being called in for interrogation, satellite channels being shut down. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to maintain control of the public discourse as the country heads towards these, what, what could be very turbulent, very chaotic elections. But Ale is being investigated, not, I mean, allegedly, for not for things he said, but for specific actions he took on the night of the violence at Mespiro. So the fact that they're yeah. offering it was like, okay, we'll forget these massive violent felonies. Right. If you just stop saying bad things, makes me think that the only reason well, those, they want him those, is because he's saying bad things. Of course, those charges are absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, Alat wrote a long column in which he described uh, transporting and protecting the bodies of Coptic pro protesters yeah. at the Coptic hospital and, and convincing the families to get autopsies and to refuse the government cover-up. It's partly been spread by uh, this other blogger, YouTube user who keeps making YouTube videos, calling himself Ahmed Spider, who's been attacking Allah and, and maybe partly responsible for uh, these charges being brought against him. But right now, except that uh, when I say charges, I, I, I misspeak because there are no charges. He has not been charged yet. He's been held under administrative detention for 15 days, a which can be renewed while the authorities, the military authorities, investigate. So there's no charges. There's vague talk of that he, he, Allah is supposed to have incited crowds against the military. Uh, it's not clear. There's no re reference that I've seen to any specific events, apart from maybe the accusations of this Ahmed spider. Um, so, you know, we're in a, a complete uh, legal uh, limbo. 
here, as usual, which was very much the case under Mubarak in many of, in many of these cases that were they were handled by emergency courts or special It's an emergency law court. stunt. It's it's yeah. extra legal detention until we can make up we can uh, indefinite. Extra legal detentions while we figure out what we can pin on you. It's basically in an American context, no Miranda rights, no and no habeas corpus. I mean, mm-hmm. no. Uh, so, you know, right now it's been fascinating and kind of heart wrenching to follow this. Actually, partly through what Allah has been writing before he was arrested, but also since mm-hmm. he's, he's he's been getting he letters out to the media. He's been getting letters out in the media. The, the, the last one I read was very uh, moving, in which he 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 uh, blames himself for having accepted the transfer to a gentler prison. The prison where he was at was crawling with insects. The toilets were, uh, you know, full of uh, human refuse and unusable. And, and he talks about what it's like to be in this prison. And he's a, you know, he he's a superstar there. He's been moved to a white-collar prison now. But before, he was the only well-known person in a prison full of people who are either, you know, I mean, who, who knows who they are, who knows what they're charged with, but they're ordinary people. They're right. either ordinary criminals or ordinary citizens, whichever uh, way you want to see it. And, and, you know, his describing of the, the, the what these people have to have to endure in this completely arbitrary military justice system is, is, is really uh, uh, extremely powerful. So the irony is that, is that actually Allah may have brought more attention to the whole military tribunal issue than, uh, than anyone else. Well, I think that was the intention. I mean, when you go into the military prosecutor and you refuse to answer questions, this was a this was an escalation. This was on purpose. He yeah. knew that what could happen. Well, he, 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 he didn't. He, he knew that, sure, but he, he didn't look to get arrested either. No, I mean, let, I'm, let's I'm remember saying, that, that he, he was, was prepared for it. I think that that that. That the and his sister has even said something to the to the um, something like uh, we've been thinking about adopting the strategy of not cooperating with the military prosecutor and Allah decided to do it because he knew he had a high enough profile that it should be someone like him to to yeah. There's to adopt actually a healthy strategy. possibility that 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 he and his family and the wider activist community now kind of has the scaf exactly where they want them. This is a huge blunder. Well, also, I think the scaf is going to be do quite... You, do you, I mean, I, is it a huge blunder? The scaf can keep him in jail if they want to. This could I build. Mean, did you, this did, could build. This could develop overseas. This is embarrassing. Yeah, but so many things are embarrassing. I mean, yeah. this is not the only one. I do think that the scaf is going to be quite concerned. Is the next activist we arrest also going to refuse questions, which is what they're now calling for? And so this is a significant challenge to military authority, which is interesting because it's, it's the second one to have happened in the last couple of weeks. The other significant challenge to military authority is that the... the, the army through its government intermediaries tried to get the political parties to agree ahead of the elections on these super constitutional principles, and we should talk about this now, and seemingly didn't get their way. Right. Sh- this shows- is, we're, getting, we're getting more and more incidents of open public um, defiance. Right. Well, let's talk about what the military was asking for and, and what the reaction was. Yeah, I mean, so basically, I mean, this is a continuation of, of uh, the summer soap opera over... Uh, constitution first. Constitution first uh, uh, or not, and that was resolved, or we thought it had been resolved by an agreement over 
uh, having constitutional principles. Actually, most Islamists have for several months refused that, partly with with uh, and and they should be commended for their. Uh, uh, for foreseeing this, this problem, partly they said because the, the, they suspected the army would use that, these constitutional principles, which would be uh, written out and be binding before the constitution is, itself is written. The original idea is that they would basically, it would become like a bill of rights, it would enshrine basic guarantees, Protection minorities. Of minorities. Human rights uh, and so on. And so it turns uh, out the a consensus army. <laughs> over the role of Islam in the state and and so on. The minority they really want to protect is themselves. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so this week, what happened? The the army didn't officially roll this out. They had a proxy do it. Yeah, the, the deputy uh, prime minister for political affairs, Ali Selmi, who's a member, a senior member of the Waft Party, uh, uh, was tasked with bringing the parties around together and agreeing on on on, on this. Uh, constitutional uh, principles issue, which covered things from the composition of the constituted assembly, uh, in which he offered, you know, there should be people from certain parts of public life, you know, X number from universities, X number from syndicates, X number from right. uh, such and such, so it would be representative. Representatives the of the youth, they are so, to be duly so voted down. And there was a big argument over how many of the 100 members of the constituted assembly would be Directly appointed by the constitutional assembly, um, by, by by parliament, sorry, and how many would be appointed from a list that would be suggested by the army? So, so basically, that the army gets first pick. Uh, so, so that's one 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 thing that completely confused people because the idea, as understood, uh, back when, I think back last March or April when. When the idea of holding elections that would have been, and then having Parliament appoint a constituent assembly was first aired, was that Parliament decides all 100 members. It's, they're appointed by Parliament. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a back and forth on whether these they should be appointed people outside Parliament who mm -hmm. would be appointed or appointed from within Parliament and so on. But all this and, and these meetings were, were supposed to resolve that. Um, so that's one part of it. The other thing is that the constitutional principles declaration also included references to basically the military budget being above any oversight by either parliament or the presidency and references to the SCAF continuing to exist even after the president is elected which is no, no, let's just let's just focus on this one because this one's I'm just completely amazed and a little bit kind of delighted that they thought they could get away with this and that they're not – that it's being rejected so roundly and that they actually put a clause in establishing themselves as bigger than any elected government and they thought that that would go down easy somehow. I mean, Or this is their opening gambit. Or and, this is their opening and bid. And now they're designed. already backing off because some of the, the Islamist parties wouldn't even go to the meeting. Other parties walked out. Statements the following day described what was happening as a rape of the future parliament. It was, it was, People it was, are, were rejected this out of hand. They're calling for mass mobilization in a couple of weeks, a big demo. So this, this hasn't worked. But, and so it seems like a strategic blunder, and I think it probably was. At the same time, their oh. agenda is now very clear, and they are going to continue negotiating on it and eventually probably get right, some yeah. of these things. Well, and, and to be fair, some of the political parties have agreed. 
to at least as the, the amended constitution, which removes the amended uh, Declaration of Principles, which was just announced, I think, uh, uh, yesterday or day before, in which Alice suddenly said, okay, we'll drop this no oversight of the budget, but we'll say something. They introduced some text about how the National Security Council, National Defense Council, which is supposed to be this council of, uh, a, a bit like the Joint Chief of, of Staff in the, in the US that meets Around the president, you know, the, the they decide the budget. Of the US because is, remember, is answerable this, this, to the president. This isn't about you know, they, they, and there's there's a lot of obfuscation. You know, they, they've been making the counter argument that this is oh, we must protect you know the secrecy of the military budget, but the, the argument is not about secrecy. If you want to have it secret that you spent, you know, two billion. Uh, dollars or pounds on a specific type of weaponry because uh, in the interest of national security, that's fine. Here we're talking about mechanisms the, you can build in yeah, for, for because, something like for that instance, that doesn't in the, jeopardize in, national security. Exactly. In the United States, you have certain uh, committees that have privileged access to information, and those committees are tasked with reviewing in Congress uh, those aspects, those those classified aspects of, of uh, defense spending, for but, instance. But what it but, comes down to here is that they don't trust civilians, and they don't trust the process. And they want to keep themselves above anything else. Above everything. And also, they are trying constantly to get people to agree to things on the side ahead of time before the process actually works itself out. So before you've even formed parliament, before you've even formed the constituent assembly, they're already trying to get everybody to agree to what's going to be in the constitution. Yeah. And this is the big difference, again, to go back to Tunisia. You know, in Tunisia, they agreed at some point, okay, we're, here's the process. We're going to try and have it as well organized and clean as possible. We're going to take the risk and take a little leap into, into, into the unknown. Here... The, the, the SCAF does not want to take a leap into the unknown, the unknown being the results of the elections and what MPs will do in Parliament once, uh, once they're elected. Well, I think one of the one of the questions at play here is it hinges, or the litmus test, is, is, is whether or not you think the SCAF is smart or stupid. If, if they're stupid and they've just overplayed their hand and, and just sort of like tried to push the Turkish model or their interpretation of the Turkish model too blatantly and are just being laughed at now, then that's great because that kind of like speeds us to where we need to be, which is them acceding to civilian authority. Elected civilian authority is the only way to have a proper country. If you think they're smart, then the question is different in that they obviously knew that they were going to get this reaction. This was, as you said, the beginning of negotiations. So what is their end game? What did they propose this in order to have it rejected and then settle for what? Like what's their what's their, their long game fallback position that, that's supposed to come after this is rejected? Well, I mean as much of this as they can get, I think. And the other variable in the in the situation is the political parties in Egypt is is can political forces in Egypt come together and form a unified front where they put aside, you know, their personal interests and and their and their ideological differences and you know, in one voice sort of put forward an alternative vision and this is a big problem is it they have not been very good at doing that so far. <coughs> Yeah, I, I think that you know there's various possible scenarios you can look at. I mean, one is that the parties and, and the military 
resolve this and find some kind of agreement. I think that's unlikely right now because uh, some of the liberal parties and most of the Islamists are really against now the whole idea of of, of uh, constitutional principles. So, uh, the other is that the army keeps things very vague and tries to, to and deals with it later. Tries and this is. To, to be there, it seems to be their approach now, and just hopefully, they hope that after the elections, they can deal with the winner of the election or the largest party in parliament, likely the Muslim Brothers, to uh, 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 you know come to a, a living arrangement where you know whereby informally, if not you know if it's not even if it's not written down, it amounts to the same thing where they 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 don't. You know, they, they maintain control over the military budget and it's not up for discussion. And perhaps on the Brotherhood side or whoever else side, they'll think, well, okay, we'll accept this for now as a practice, but we'll fight that fight in five years. I don't think um, anybody is actually planning or make that their number one priority is to challenge military prerogatives. Yeah. It's just that the military's obsession with maintaining control of everything leads has 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 so undermined the transitional process because it makes them undemocratic. They are afraid of, of, of people making free choices. They are afraid of other forces in the country having political legitimacy. And, and it has made the fact, the way the process has worked where like everything gets announced really late, the rules keep changing. This is all because they, they don't trust the process. They're afraid of what the result will be. And I personally, having come from Tunisia, almost feel like there is a politics of chaos going on in Egypt. There is, it is, it is convenient for things to be as confusing and opaque and potentially dangerous as possible. It is convenient for the elections to seem like a complete mess, for expectations to be really low, for people to be afraid of violence. You know that there's going to be logistical problems. There's that they're letting lots of former NDP members run again. You know. There, there is something that is yeah, to their advantage to having this process that seems almost constantly out of control because it allows them all this room on the on the edges to do this constant sort of backdoor and, uh, negotiations. And not just on the edges. I mean, another possible scenario is that if they don't get their way, the army will either cancel the election, I think unlikely, but or uh, try to make it so that the winners of the election are parties like the Waft Party, like even uh, Masr... Um, uh, party which has accepted the, 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 these, these principles uh, try and cut a deal with the Nagib party Nagib Sawiris has, has accepted he's accepted the revised principles yeah. that remove that, that, that remove the, 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 the that allow civilian oversight well, of the, the military well, the, the, well it's ambiguous the the language, civilian I haven't looked at the language uh, uh, closely because I, I just saw it uh, earlier today but in the press reports they, 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 they pass it on to a national defense council which which has a privileged control of, of of that budget so so it's ambiguous about what what it means exactly you know they've, okay. they, 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 they've made it but but the WAF party has backed it the the masculine oh. the, the Egyptian I hate the WAF so much I know me too uh, and 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 now you know the WAF plausibly might do okay in this election. Uh, honestly, a good showing by the Waft would 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 
disturb me far more than any amount of good showing by well, the Muslim Brotherhood. Like everyone, you know, the West is so obsessed with the Muslim Brotherhood. And I'm just like, you know what? I want these guys over here to die because the they were just kind of the classic archetypal sellout. Loyal Fig opposition. Leaf, loyal opposition, you know, believing in nothing other than the fact that we should have at least nine seats in parliament and all the perks that gets us. And I, you know, well, I have a good friend who's a prominent Wuft guy and I, I get together with him and I just debate him and just go, why? Why? You know, he's a sincere guy and I'm just like, why are you wasting your time with this? You know? It's a party that has a lot of historical baggage. I mean, that's a lot of prestige associated with it. It betrayed that prestige yeah. a Decades generation ago. ago. Yeah. It, it, sure. it itself, there's nothing to hold on to. Sure, but we, we, the Waft actually may do well for several reasons. One is that, especially in Upper Egypt, it's, uh, it's brought in a lot of former NDP people into oh. its ranks and they're running as its candidates. And let's remember that most of Upper Egypt did not rebel during the revolution yeah. and these people especially if they're tied to lo prominent local pal uh, families and so on might uh, might stand a, a decent chance of being elected I don't even think that that's that bad frankly uh, it would be one what worries me more is that they're bringing in these people not on the condition okay we'll give you the respectability of being members of our party but in exchange you have to uh, adopt our values which are progressive or liberal values they're bringing these people and they're selling out and you know with with with, with increasingly this attitude of of pre-selling out themselves to the waft uh, to sorry to the scaf uh, uh, that's I, I think that's the worrying i mean it's, you know it's not surprising that that in a, especially in rural areas in egypt that you're going to get the same you know the social power structures has remained the same. That's the revolution, fine. the that's, big families will win. I mean, it's it's. But basically, but, but, you're going to have in this new parliament, I think three. I think you've said this perhaps before. Three groups. You're going to have the Islamists, big, the like genuine secularists, new post-revolutionary forces, small, and the opportunists, again, big, possibly a big chunk, former NDP, these kind of pseudo-opposition parties that are willing to deal with whoever's in power and, you know... Yeah, and since no party is going to get a 50% majority, I mean, it's pretty... I, 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 th I think it's, it's, it's unlikely that, that that's... Uh, that that'll happen. Maybe we'll, you know, it's quite possible they'll be surprised because these elections are very difficult to predict because we don't know each political map and because the system is so complicated. But, uh, you, you know, we're looking at a fragmented parliament and in which case is that who gets to form the majority block? Mm -hmm. Is it Islamists with basically the Muslim Brotherhood and Wasit with radical Islamists, the Salafists? Is it Islamists and the center secularists? Is it Islamists and the, the, the opportunists? Uh, uh, you know, that, in a sense, that, that, that's the question. I mean, I, Either, I, But all scenarios have the Muslim Brotherhood as kingmaker. It's just a question of who else gets other numbers that they can join with and what direction, yeah. what it's deal hard, they decide. It's really to hard cut. to predict the numbers, but I think definitely the Muslim Brothers tend to do well. I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're good at this. They, they have experience. Yeah. They're good at, uh, they, they run good political campaigns. They've already, they're already up and at it with their, uh, uh, you know, these cars going around. Uh, I read something about it today. They have these special cars that have been specially painted to promote the party and promote the, the good word. I, I, the meat they give, they, they've been giving out and, and the cheap vegetables they've been selling. 
fine. Uh, you know, ahead of Eid and, and so on. All the, all the, the sort of buying, the, the kind of buying loyalty with meat on the Eid thing. I know so many people that were that were like irate about that and just indignant. And I was just, it just doesn't bother me that much. I mean. No, okay. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing uh, stopping any other party from doing it. Frankly. Yeah, so. and and and, and, and I'll tell you, I, I I went to interview about two three weeks ago. I went to interview uh, Mohammed Beltagi, uh, in his office, who's a senior Muslim Brotherhood uh, guy, a former MP, and who was really one of the on the ground leaders of the Brotherhood contingent in Tahrir during the revolution. Like he basically lived in Tahrir for about two weeks straight, and. Um, and in his office, just to get to his his office, there was there the, like in the outer office, there were three or four volunteers just assembling hundreds of new party applications, like sort of like mixing and matching this application with this photo and stapling them and putting all together and just putting together like a two foot high stack. And this was just one office of dozens across the city, and this was several weeks ago. So they're they're organized and mobilized and motivated and and. And that's probably, you know, that's good. Democracy, you know, bring it on. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, regardless of the results, one hopes that the process will be, you know, one, physically safe. I mean, there is a serious concern about about violence and intimidation at, at the polls. We don't know how we can control the situation the police and the army is going to be. Mm-hmm. There's a serious question about logistics, about all the materials being there, about, you know, all the supervision being in place. And, uh, and, and we don't know how much access monitors are going to actually have. Again, there's been this policy of ambiguity where, like, uh, people... There are going to be monitoring, international monitoring organizations. No. I think the Carter Center yes, is going to have some not, sort of presence. But they're not going to be called monitors. They're going to be called observers. And they're not going to have the same kind of access that they've had when they, in other countries when they come in as full-fledged... Monitors. Meaning they might be barred from a polling station by whatever from the police officer is is Who there. Knows? I mean, it's not clear how much access they have. And besides, I mean, in a way, that's besides the point. First, they're only going to have a few, at most, on election day, a couple of dozen of people. Sure. Here, three dozen people, perhaps. Secondly. The, the Carter Center, and the way it normally monitors an election, it has what I call long-term observers who come here way ahead of the poll, make sure that the, the right. atmosphere, the political atmosphere, is right and conducive to, to, to good elections. Thirdly, you know, uh, President Jimmy Carter came and met with Tantawi, and that's how I got uh, the, an agreement for Fine. them to come. But the I, the, the, the the agreement is based on the idea that they're not observers, that they're witnesses. It's, and Does that have some sort of an actual sort of international legal definition in no. monitoring circles, or are people just playing semantic games? No, it's an important. I mean, it's not. It's not that it has any legal power because, at the end of the day, the the, the state that's receiving the monitors has the right to limit their what they can do. But it's it's basically saying that you you will not be doing the same the the, the full work of a monitor. You're here to be there on the day. You're our guest. You're our guest. You know. <laughs> so does the word monitor, does the word observer carry less power than the word monitor Apparently. in actual on the ground? I mean, I mean, they are making this distinction and it corresponds to a distinction in the kind of power that they will have, the kind okay. of access they will have. But again, it's not 100% clear 
But it suggests, I mean, one, they, have, they haven't been allowed in as early as they normally have. I don't think, I very much doubt they're going to have the same access to all the institutions that organize the elections that they normally have. Other, other international election monitoring groups have still not received permission to come. I mean, again, Tunisia opened its doors to everybody. This argument that to have election monitors is some sort of foreign interference, it, 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 it gives your election credibility. There's absolutely no reason um, to, to not want these people there unless you're afraid that it's going to be a mess. If you want, by the way, if you want a detailed analysis of the electoral system and, 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 and the different problems with it, uh, I, I really recommend the recent paper by uh, IFES, the International Federation for Electoral uh, Systems, uh, put out on November 1st. It's called Analysis of the 2011 Parliamentary Electoral System in Egypt. Uh, we, I put up a link on the blog, but we'll, we'll link it again on the post uh, for this podcast. Uh, the, 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 the issues raised by this election are really quite complex. The, the extent to which they're complicated uh, and will be complicated for the average voter is uh, is a bit hard to explain, and, and that's recommended reading if you want to find out more. And also, I'm sure next week we'll be talking some more about the elections here, right? So maybe we can get into some of the parties, some of the alliances. Yeah. Yeah, it's time to break down exactly who's in the field, I think. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that, we'll do that, but it's uh, it's a bit weird to be doing it at a time where there's still regular questions about whether these elections are going to be held uh, or not. I think they will. But I think so, too. I, I think they shouldn't, but <laughs> that's another thing. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll be back on a regular schedule next week, uh, and we'll leave you with... Uh, um, a song that, that we I've put up the video on the blog uh, I think about a month ago but it's a, it's a song by a group of Tunisian uh, artists, many of them young underground artists some of them people who weren't allowed to really have a proper career under the Ben Ali regime because their songs were political and they put out this, this really cute uh, get out the vote song uh, called, I think, Tunis. No, I think Saudi it's. Or something um, like that. Uh, the chorus is about Tunis. No, it's called. Uh, you are oh, the voice. And Intel Sut. Yeah, so Intel Sut. I'm looking at the, D, the, the DVD uh, uh, case right now. Uh, we, we actually met one of these artists when we were in Tunisia a couple of weeks ago. Uh, is a, a, a couple of guys from uh, an underground rap group called uh, Bizarta Armada. Bizarta is a town in northern um, Tunisia, and, and, and they were uh, they were very cool. They were actually a lot more skeptical than we were about the elections oh, and things like that. Okay. It was kind of funny to talk to them, but still, uh, 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 still they voted. They voted, and. Uh, uh, I, it's a nice track. Enjoy. And, and for those of you who were going to find the lyrics completely incomprehensible, the, the video is on. Uh, yeah, we'll link to the video which has subtitles. Link it up because there's stuff that if if there wasn't subtitles, I would have no idea what they were saying. <laughs> so see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Can't have seen you
البلاد ومحقول لا حق الضايع يجري مقهور فرطبت ودير يا حرق ماشي النور ناس أحلى ما بدات فد في البابور كان في مالي ما يقدرش نشوفو كيفاش نعاونو نبنيو حجرة حجرة واللي ما تعلمش نعلمو نحطو اليد في اليد كان حد منا طاح نقاومو واللي ناوي يظل بلاد نولي وجيش نقاومو صعب تحب الفن يجا عنا نسمو جيتو ليس لبلادي يلقى فينا ندورو لا ماهيش لغة خشبية هاو المامو نعملو واللي علينا واللي يعمل خوك نقدرو Liberté, solidarité, démocratie, à consommer sans modération. Tu 